0: Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. (laughs) Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And this is part two of the episode on Christopher Porco,
1: who killed his father and tried to kill his mother. At the end of our last episode, we left Peter and Joan snuggled up in bed a week before Thanksgiving and we did that on purpose. That's the
0: way we like to think of them, at home and safe. Unfortunately, someone was coming for them and that was their son, Chris. And I
1: hate that he's on his way. If you'd like to hear more about how we got here and Chris's background and what led to this, Please go back and listen to part one of this
0: episode. Shall we begin? When Chris got to the house, he had the audacity to pull into the driveway. He used the key hidden in the planter pot next to the front door to let himself into the house, wherein he disarmed the security system by entering the code at 2.14am. Barrister, the yellow lab, was roaming free. So Chris locked him in the basement and snagged an axe that his dad stored in the garage. Chris knew where his parents slept, and that's where he headed next. When he finished with his debauchery, he smashed the alarm panel, incorrectly thinking that this action was erasing the evidence that it had been disarmed. He also cut the telephone lines and cut away a screen on the garage window, which is the only window that wasn't alarmed. Mm. On his way to the Jeep, hoping to make all this seem like some macabre home invasion. Chris drove away into the early morning darkness. His plan was working like clockwork, and the best news was that school was out for most of next week. He could discover their deaths, grieve, help with the funeral mass, and be back at school without missing a beat.
1: It's dark. Very
0: 52-year-old Peter Porco was nothing if he wasn't reliable. He was steady, married for 30 years, and still in a strong and happy marriage. He was a good dad to his two boys, and he didn't say much about it, but there were rumors about his youngest son being a bit of a problem. He was so reliable that when he didn't show up for work on November 15th, everyone immediately knew something was wrong. When they couldn't reach him by phone, one of the CSOs, Michael Hart, decided to head over to the Porco home to make sure everything was okay. CSO? What's that? Oh, court security officer. They're the police officers that you see in courthouses. Some people call them bailiffs, but they're a little bit different. They're tasked with keeping court personnel safe. Oh, okay. Mr. Hart arrived at the Porco home at 11.35 a.m. to make sure everything was okay and was shocked into the realization that everything was most definitely not okay. This kind man, Peter Porco, whom the CSO greeted every morning and with whom he'd been tasked with protecting in the courthouse, was at home lying in a pool of blood by his own open front door. How did he get downstairs? There was a trail of blood leading from where Peter lay, tracing backwards his movements from the front door to the kitchen, the hallway, and up the stairs to the master bedroom. An experienced policeman, the CSO, did not contaminate the crime scene. He contacted the local police and other emergency responders. That must
1: have been a nightmare for him though. The CSO mm-hmm. heart was someone who saw him every day.
0: Right. I mean, they're friendly. They're mm-hmm. friends. When the police arrived at this pretty home on a quiet street, they were nowhere near prepared for what was inside. They quickly secured the house, finding 54-year-old Joan in a blood-drenched bed. She appeared to have suffered the same type of bludgeoning as her husband. Her face decimated. Her jaw shattered, an eye and part of her skull missing, but miraculously alive. The police wanted to know what depraved soul had committed this crime, and they were afraid Joan would not make it through the night. So they took a chance and started questioning her as the paramedics tended to her. But would she be able to answer their questions given the trauma she had just undergone? The detectives conferred with the emergency responders. Dennis Wood, one of the three paramedics, was amazed at what he was seeing. I've never seen anybody with this massive of facial and head trauma and still be alive and actually able to communicate like she was, he would later say. Joan indicated that despite her injuries, she had full presence of mind. When her nightgown moved up too high she would modestly reach down and pull it lower she was also responding precisely to verbal commands like straighten your arm don't move your leg as they worked to save her life yes it would be possible to ask joan about her attacker before they moved her that's amazing incredibly amazing don't you think Mm mm-hmm detective bodish remember him
1: yeah who investigated the break-ins when the computers were stolen
0: Yeah, him. Detective Bodish took the lead. Joan was willing to talk to them, but was having trouble communicating with them due to her shattered jaw. Detective Bodish knew this family somewhat. He was that police officer who responded to the burglary complaint at Thanksgiving. He remembered they had two sons as he tried to ascertain who had done this to her. As the paramedics continued working to save her life, Detective Bodish asked her first if she could hear him. She nodded her head several times. The other lieutenant on the scene had reminded him of the names of their two sons. So Detective Bodish got down to business and asked her if a family member had committed this crime. Her hands and her head motioned yes.
1: Oh, that's sickening.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. All three first responders watched in amazement as Detective Bodish questioned Joan. Did Jonathan do this to you, he asked? Was it Jonathan who had snuck into their bedroom with an axe intent on murdering her and her husband? Joan shook out a vehement but extremely painful no, wagging her first two fingers horizontally back and forth to emphasize the no she was working so hard to articulate. Detective Bodish later testified, At this point I knew she could hear me. I knew she understood the answers to the questions. What about her son Christopher? Could it have been Christopher? Detective Bodish and the paramedics held in small gasps as Joan slowly and painfully nodded yes, moving those same two fingers up and down vertically to signal in the affirmative.
1: Do you imagine how much it would hurt to nod your head when you've been hit with an axe?
0: I know. Her jaw was shattered, she was missing an eye, she was in terrible shape, Mm -hmm. and she is identifying her youngest son as the attacker. That's horrible. (sighs) But Detective Bodish wanted to be sure.
1: Okay, that's probably good.
0: So he asked again, looking for that consistency. Did Jonathan attack her and her husband? Again, a firm no. Did Christopher attack her and her husband? Again, a firm yes. Then this man apologized to her for having to ask her through her suffering. Yeah, He said he felt bad, but at least now he had a lead that might bring justice to this case.
1: That's a hard decision to make as an investigator.
0: I think so. Anyway, Joan was whisked off to the hospital where they tried to stabilize her so they could perform surgery. As the doctors rushed to save Joan's life, the police began their careful investigation. Joan had indicated that Chris had committed this horrific crime. And at first cut, that seemed wrong. Chris was away at school at the University of Rochester, some three hours and 233 miles away. Nevertheless, they got to work. Joan had identified Chris as her killer, so the police put out an all-points bulletin, one of those APBs, Mm -hmm. to get him off the streets, wherever he was. So are the police allowed to do that, take statements from an injured victim? Absolutely. Time-wise, the closer to the crime, the greater the veracity of the victim. And a dying testimony is admissible at trial, even if the victim survives. Ah, that's important in this case. Yes. While everyone else went in search of Chris, the investigators next searched the house for clues. The security system had been smashed. The telephone line had been cut and a screen had been cut open on the garage window. But it was curious. Although the screen was cut to make it look as though it was the intruder's entry into the home, the window sashes had been nailed to allow the window to open only four inches. That was not the way the intruder had entered the home, for sure. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It wasn't difficult to ascertain the murder weapon, The axe that had been used in the attack was lying on the bed. The investigators would eventually discover the axe actually belonged to the Porcos and was usually kept in their garage. Police files indicated this home had been robbed a few times in the past, but this time, absolutely nothing had been taken. The house hadn't been tossed, but the drawers had been pulled out in an obvious attempt to make it look like a robbery. Yet nothing was missing. Joan's purse hadn't even been rifled. The intruder hadn't taken electronics, jewelry, money, nothing at all. <laughs> For once, right? Exactly.
1: No laptops were stolen. Strange.
0: <laughs> right. And this was looking more and more like a family insider. They turned their attention to Peter's curious movements about the house. Brain injuries can be weird. Weird. And you don't really feel your brain. And as we all know, our brains are very powerful. Following Peter's bloody trail, they came up with this timeline. Peter appeared to have awakened from his bludgeoned state and, confused or in denial about what had happened, gotten out of bed and headed to the bathroom. He bled into the sink, indicating he did look at himself in the mirror as he pulled on his clothing It's not clear if he actually registered his broken jaw and maimed face, because brains can be tricky like that, but the evidence suggested that despite being bludgeoned with that axe 16 times, he'd moved about as though he were preparing to go to work that day. He'd gone down to the kitchen to start coffee, he prepared a sandwich for his lunch, and he started unloading the dishwasher. They also found a Check Peter had prepared for Chris stuck inside the dishwasher that he'd started to unload. It was made out in the amount of $100, just like that email we talked about. Mm-hmm. His father was covering that fine for Christopher's recent ticket. There was blood on the bottom corner of the check. It appears he next headed to the front door. Some believe he may have been crawling out to his car to fetch his cell phone, hoping to call 911 or simply going to the front door to fetch the morning paper. Or maybe he wanted to see why the door had been left ajar. No one will ever really know what he was thinking in that last moment of his life. He collapsed from blood loss, or possibly cardiorespiratory arrest, and died. That's
1: so strange, but I've heard about things like this before. Damage to the hypothalamus and the insular parts of our brains, as would happen when one is beaten with an axe, mm-hmm. it induces something called a catecholamine storm, driven by the neuroendocrine axis, which massively increases the outflow of the sympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. Then it's immediately followed with an acute inflammatory response and major dysfunction of the autonomic nervous systems. All of this, wrapped up in a terrifying package, can lead to that cardiorespiratory
0: arrest. Um, catecholamines are, you know,
1: dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, epinephrine, aka adrenaline, and
0: surprisingly, histamine. Wow. Okay. And what about him walking around not understanding that he was injured? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I
1: don't know everything. (laughs) Maybe it's kind of like when sometimes when people have a stroke and they look in the mirror, but they deny that they had a stroke even Mm -hmm. when they can see their face can't move. Oh, uh uh-huh. But what it really makes me think of is that case of Phineas Gage, the guy who had a metal rod literally shoot through his head while doing railroad mm-hmm, construction mm-hmm. way back in 1848. And He didn't seem to notice he was injured and lived to become the darling of the psychology world because they could study the changes the accident had caused to his personality.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Yeah. I guess a lot of people get terrible brain injuries, just like Stacey Moody in our episode Murder, Money, and Cows. Oh, yeah. She'd been shot twice in the head, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Behind her ear. And she was also walking around and talking. They didn't know she'd been shot for, like, the first hour emergency responders were there. Which
0: seems crazy. But I know they said she just seemed fine. Like, not fine, fine, but not shot. Yeah.
1: Not any more distressed than you would expect someone to be in that situation. Mm Mm-hmm. And honestly, there are a lot of theories about why or how that happens, but no one's a hundred percent sure other than our bodies behave strangely in life or death situations.
0: Yeah, that's really true. Research on the brain is still fairly new too, right? It really is.
1: But I was just thinking about that poor dad and I hope that he didn't realize anything when he looked in the mirror that he didn't see how injured he was and didn't realize that his wife had been attacked.
0: I know, Right. I keep hoping he thought up and thought, man, my head hurts, I don't want to go to work.
1: Yeah, I hope that was his experience. But then I think about his wife and I hope she was unconscious for that part where her husband was up and walking around.
0: Me too, it makes me want to cry. Yeah. Later that day, back at school, Chris made a call to the Bethlehem Police Station. He claimed he'd been approached by a Times Union reporter, but he seems to be filling in some of the blanks here with his personal knowledge of those attacks. Here, we have the call for you. See if you can pick up a mistake or two. Bethlehem Police, this is Hi, Hi, um, my name is Chris Borgo. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information on me. Whereabouts are I'm you? I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, are, are, are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you have a dorm name or? Um, it's called Monroe. Okay. And you were hearing from the Times Union?
1: Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found, um, I guess, I don't know, they didn't say how or anything.
0: Let me try and find you somebody who may have some more information for you. Some sources say the Times Union reporter was Simone Sebastian and that she was trying to get hold of Chris's roommate. But again, a reporter would have known that both parents were not dead. Only the murderer would have supposed they were both dead. Mm -hmm. Chris hung around his room and waited for an investigator to call. It didn't take long before the phone rang. Detective Rudolph told him his father was dead, but his mother was still alive. The call had a bad connection, a lot of static, so the detective asked Christopher to call him back at the station. Their conversation kind of starts in the middle because of that bad connection call, and Chris is returning his call. Okay. Here, we have it. Okay.
1: Okay. Uh, now, as far as, when was the last thing you said you came down to see your parents? Uh... About three weeks ago. I, it was on the weekend. I can't give you a date. I have to, have to figure it out. I'm not really sure. Okay, but about three weeks ago? Yeah. Okay, and the email, what, what's going on with your email? You said you, um, you, well, you I, emailed him today, but you didn't get a, a response? Yeah, I, I emailed him this afternoon. Um, my dad at work. Okay. Um, about uh, college loan stuff. Okay. Are you going to go right to Albany Med? I, I, don't know where, where, I don't even know where my mom is, but... Yeah, she is at Albany Med. Okay, do you, do you know her condition? Uh, in... No, because I haven't talked to her. Let me give you my pager number. Okay. Because uh, when you get there, I'll come and see if there's anything I can do for you. Okay. All right? Yeah.
0: Okay, thanks.
1: Yep. bye Zoom. Yeah,
0: Chris's uncle, John Balzano, his mother's brother, lived near the University of Rochester. It was him who brought Chris down to Albany. Chris told both his uncle John and his brother John that he'd slept in the dorm's lounge the night of the attacks, which is super important later. Anyway, the police intercepted Chris before he got to his mother's hospital room. They told him his mother had been wheeled into surgery and that they would like to chat with him before she got out. He agreed and went to the station with them. In the interrogation room, Detective Bodish talked to him about his family, his brother, everyone's relationships, and then he asked about finances and the school loan Chris had mentioned. Chris lied through his teeth. Chris mentioned he'd gone to see his girlfriend, Sarah Fisher, at her parents' house on Friday in the early evening. He was aware that his mother was away at a conference for the weekend, but didn't mention where his dad might have been. Chris said he dropped by the Porco home a little after 3.15 on Saturday He told the investigators that he went in the house, fed barrister, checked the garage to see if he could find a car in there, and left for college. Hmm. Why was he looking for a car? I don't know. If you walk in the house and no one's home, and you expected no one to be home, you don't typically go in the garage, Yeah, that doesn't make sense. No. So I would speculate that he wanted to make sure that if there was any evidence of him being in the garage, he had it covered. Ah, okay. That's my guess. Anyway, this will get a little bit confusing because we're going to talk about the interrogation Mm -hmm. and then also talk about pieces he's leaving out. Okay. So this is a piece he had left out. What Chris had told Sarah was completely different, albeit ever-changing. He told her he'd headed directly home, and he said he felt bad he hadn't stopped to see his parents, which was no big deal. Chris could see his parents later. But then his story changed. On Sunday afternoon, when they were IMing with each other, Sarah was surprised that he was talking about how he'd stopped by his house to get a jacket. He told Sarah he'd seen his dad, but his mom was at a conference. Chris told her he had to go pick up an economics book at 10 o'clock that night, and that's when he quit texting her for the evening. Oh, okay. So, back to the investigation. hmm Chris asked point blank if his mom could speak, whether she could communicate at all.
1: Well, of course, his first concern would be whether or not she could tell on him, not whether she was going to live. And I'm sure he was worried. Can you imagine the panic he was stifling as he sat there, realizing how badly he'd botched this murder?
0: I know. And he didn't have any remorse, or even seemed to care about the pain that his mother was in. But I'm hoping he was realizing he was probably going to wind up going to prison at that point. But maybe not. He seems to think he can get away with everything. Mm Mm-hmm. At about this time, Peter Porkel's friend and a fellow attorney, John Polster, showed up at the police station claiming to be representing Chris. John Polster later says that he was actually representing Joan. Okay. Uh But the police made him wait. After conferring with each other, the police came to the conclusion that it was up to Chris to decide who his lawyer was. Someone cannot just unilaterally enter on his behalf without his permission. That makes sense. Yeah. So they decided they would go ask Chris if this guy was his lawyer. But the detectives were reluctant to do so, Mm
1: -hmm. of course,
0: because once a lawyer enters, everything ends, right? Yeah, usually. So one of the detectives entered the room and said, Hey, that guy John at the hospital, is he your lawyer? And Chris had responded, no, he's a friend of my dad's. I don't think he can even be my lawyer. He's a good friend of my dad's. Okay. Which, yeah. Seems fair. Yeah. Might be a conflict there. Yeah. They next asked, so are you okay speaking with us? And Chris said yes. Okay. And in case anyone's... Wondering, yes, he was read his rights, and yes, he did read them and sign them. Okay. Anyway, Detective Bodish asked who might have had motive to commit this horrendous crime. He mused over family relationships and insurance policies. He reminded Chris about the poorly staged robbery that they'd both been a party to on Thanksgiving in 2003. The detective wondered out loud about Chris's girlfriend and his childhood friend. And that was when Chris gave this apparently clueless man what he thought was a great, big, huge breadcrumb. (laughs) Well, he said, and this is a quote, We have relatives in the mafia. I guess you'd call it, his name is Frank Porco. We know he was involved in the mafia. That whole part of the family was. (laughs) That's a pretty easy target, right? Right. And in the ensuing conversation, Chris adroitly points out that he doesn't think that there's any connection to this at all, but he'd overheard his uncle talking about it on the way down to Albany. Uncle Frank had been in prison for about a year. Detective Bodish agreed that they should keep that in mind. Detective Bodish next asked Chris to help him build a timeline from Friday morning forward. And Chris complied. On Friday morning, the 13th, Chris said he'd gotten up at 10 a.m. and headed out to find food on campus at around 10.30 a.m. He headed back to his dorm room, but he couldn't remember what he'd done after that. He told Sarah he'd head out to her house at about 11, but he didn't. He wasn't sure what he did. He might have watched a movie. He might have played Nintendo. Might have just watched TV. He couldn't remember. Eventually, he took a shower and by 1 p.m. he was on the road to see Sarah. He said his roommate, Madame Ambrosio, could vouch for his activities that day. Oh, but then the detectives prompt him about getting a bagel. And then he remembers what he was doing. He wasn't watching TV. He wasn't playing Nintendo. Before he left to see his girlfriend... He remembered he'd met up with his ex-girlfriend Janice to get bagels before he headed out to see Sarah, his girlfriend. They apparently talked about Chris meeting up with a realtor while he was in town so he could purchase a piece of property in the Outer Banks. Oh, how? And with what money? What is a kid in college going to do with a property in the Outer Banks anyway? Uh, No idea, but they are good questions. So, Chris said that he got gas a couple of miles from the university and headed to Albany, entering the thruway on Ramp 46. He arrived at Sarah Fisher's house at 5.30 p.m. The couple went to dinner at TGI Friday's with Sarah's sister Kate at about 6.30 p.m. They had a nice dinner. They were finished by 7.30 p.m., and they all helped pay for their meal using cash. They stopped off at Hollywood Video to get a video, and then they headed back to Sarah's parents' house to watch videos and chill.
1: Wow. Hollywood video. This feels like a million years ago, <laughs> right? Right. So is it like the dinosaurs' version
0: of Netflix and chill? <laughs> no. No, not Netflix and chill. Videos and chill. She went to bed upstairs. He went to bed downstairs on the couch. Sarah's parents were home the entire time except for one hour in the morning on the 14th. Okay. Okay. That day, the 14th, they just stayed in, and Chris finally left at about 3.15 p.m. Chris arrived at his parents' house at approximately 3.25 p.m. by his report to the investigators. He let himself in the door, gave the family dog a treat in the family room, says he went into the garage to see if there was a car, and then he left and went to get gas. He headed back to Rochester, entering the thruway on Entrance 24, arriving at approximately 7.15 p.m. using Exit 46. He got gas, by his own report, before he went back to school. That's important. Okay. When he entered the frat floor, the lounge area was filled with people. Seems like it was a frat party complete with beer pong and other drinking games. Chris went to bed at about 1.30 a.m. Wait, if he was in a fraternity, shouldn't he be living in a frat house? Not at the University of Rochester. They give their fraternities a suite of rooms together on the first floor that share a commons area. And everyone calls that commons area the lounge. Ah, okay. Okay? So, Chris said he slept until about noon on Sunday. Okay. Okay. He hit the library to study for an e-contest. Wait, no, that wasn't what happened. He made a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch and watched TV in the lounge with some of the guys. Then he went to the library at 6 p.m. to study for his e-contest. He said he returned to his dorm at 11 p.m., but quickly corrected that to 10.30 p.m. Chris says he returned to his dorm room and watched Total Recall on his computer. He told them the frat's regional director, Jason, was sleeping in his room that night, so he went out to the lounge area at about 1 a.m. and slept on the couch. What was he wearing when he went to sleep, they asked. Jeans and a hoodie. A black hoodie with frat symbols on it. Detective Bowdish appeared confused and ran through the timeline backwards and forwards a couple of times. This guy reminds you of Columbo. He sounds so wandery. Mm -hmm. But he's actually kind of testing a lot of things and making them repeat things a lot. Mm -hmm. Then, all of a sudden, Chris was saying he was in the lounge by 11.30, not 1 a.m., and that he stayed there sleeping for the rest of the night. But when they went back later and went through the timeline again, Mm -hmm. he corrected it to 1 a.m. But then, near the end of the interview, the detective circled again back to his timeline And he refused to answer any questions, saying he didn't remember what he'd said, and the timeline was rough. But to check with his friends, they'd say he was asleep on the couch. The detective asked, when did you meet Jason, the guy who stayed in his room? Mm -hmm. And Chris said, when he arrived. And they said, what time was that? And he said, 9 o'clock, 9 p.m. Chris insisted he was at the library, but maybe the time was off a little Two hours? (laughs) Right. Chris also mentioned he was confident the lounge was mostly void of people from 1030 because it was Sunday night. But he was going off of what usually happened in the dorm. Jason's presence had changed this circumstance. That dorm had not been empty and hadn't been quiet, hadn't been a place where he could sleep. Because what Chris didn't know is there had been a huge party. Everyone had gotten together to watch Shrek 2. (laughs) Yeah, so this is something that Chris didn't know they knew. Because he wasn't there. Right. What he didn't tell them at all, but his friend Marshall Miller will tell them later, was that the two of them had gone to Wendy's for dinner together that night. Then Chris had asked Marshall to drop him at his Jeep, which was parked off campus, saying he needed to help his aunt and uncle mulch the next morning so he was going to park his Jeep in a grassy area behind their dorm rather than in the normal parking area. Isn't that kind of weird? Shouldn't he have class on Monday? You would think that he would have class on Monday. Plus, he was telling everyone he was studying for a big exam that was supposed to be held on Monday. Hmm. So maybe he was double booked? Yeah. Double booked? I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway... Marshall thought that was weird, but okay, and he saw Chris head onto the campus in his Jeep. He didn't see him leaving again at 10.30, but a different friend, Greg Whiteside, did see Chris the next morning on November 15th at around 9.30 a.m. Chris mentioned he'd gone for a jog that morning, no mention of going to his uncle's to help mulch. Greg noted he looked bleary-eyed, and Chris mentioned he'd had a lousy night's sleep. None of his peers had any recollection of Chris jogging, ever. And his aunt, when asked, said there had been no plans for Chris to help them do anything on November 15th. They hadn't planned on seeing him that day. Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. She wouldn't expect to see him on a Monday.
0: No. Anyway, Chris next told the investigators that he woke up at 8 a.m. and went for a run. Detective Bodish asked Chris if he made a practice of sleeping in the lounge. He said no. He'd done it for a girl as a favor earlier in the year. And then this time because he'd let the regional director have his bed. He claimed to have offered Jason his bed about a week before this weekend. Chris claimed that there were several people coming in and out of the lounge when he awoke at 8 a.m., but he couldn't produce any names. Chris said people were walking around in the lounge as he slept. They must have roused him from his sleep a bit throughout the night. Chris told the investigators he woke up, went to his dorm room to snag his shoes, and went out for that run at 8 a.m. It was a 20-minute, 1.5-mile run. He ran the loop and returned home at approximately eight thirty a.m the frat president his friend greg whiteside saw him as greg stumbled out of his own room greg asked him how the couch was and chris had left him there so he could go on his run he returned and watched tv with four or five of the guys for the next three hours waiting for jason to wake up jason woke at noon Chris and a friend went to get some food on campus. His friend ate in the dining room, but he did not. They returned at 1230, watched some more TV for about an hour, and at 2 p.m., Chris went to a different friend's dorm room to borrow his computer so he could chat Sarah, a girl named Kara who lived on campus, a girl named Courtney from his old high school, and a bunch of other people because Jason was still using his room for another day. Interesting. Mm, Yeah. Do I have a girlfriend? No. (laughs) During the course of his chatting, he told Sarah he wasn't feeling well. Sarah's sister Kate sent her something about the police being at 36 Broccoli Drive, the Porcos' home. So Sarah quickly sent Chris a copy of what her sister had texted her. Chris then messaged her, that he hadn't heard from his parents all morning, and that he was nervous. For some unspoken reason, he could now return to his room, which he did, and he surfed around the web looking for a story about what was happening. WYNT.com reported a murder, but didn't say who had died. Between 2.45 and 3 p.m., Chris messaged Sarah, saying, quote, My parents are dead. And then he went radio silent. That's weird. Chris called the Bethlehem Police Dispatch at 3.09, saying someone from the Times Union had called him about his parents. And in that phone call, Chris assumed both of his parents were dead.
1: Well, you would if you'd hit both of them with an axe.
0: Yeah, I think so. with the timeline complete, the detectives made small talk with Chris. They talked about his school, about his mom, and about how sad Judge Cardona was about all of this. And then they reviewed that timeline again. This is when he made those two corrections. One was because he'd flat-out lied by omission and been caught about the bagel. Mm -hmm. And one was the weakness in his story— that time when he headed to the couch to sleep, well, it was eleven, no wait, it was ten thirty. Then when they circled back to it, it was eleven thirty. then he corrected it back to ten thirty, then it was one. He was all over the place, so Detective bodish decided to push Chris. He told him his mother was implicating him as the attacker. How Chris responds to this is very interesting. I think
1: it's all very interesting, but before we go there, let's go back to when he called the police. Okay. So if you hear there are a bunch of cops at or near your parents' house,
0: what would you do? Well, I don't know about you, but I'd pick up the phone and call my parents in a mad panic. Then I would probably call my siblings and probably my parents' neighbors trying to get an eye on my parents.
1: Exactly. That's what I would do. I would first call my parents and then call... Depending on where the sibling is, either him or the Mm -hmm. neighbors or the aunt. Someone who could go and check on them, right? Right. But he didn't do that. He surfed the web since it's 2004. Mm -hmm. And then when he got a hit, he called the police. Not his parents, not his brother. Which you don't do if you're hearing about this for the first time, right? Like, you call your parents. Because you assume they're alive.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you caught that. I'm the very same way. I would have called my parents first. Me too. So... Chris had told a bunch of his friends that he'd been trying to call his parents since Sunday afternoon, but that they hadn't picked up and he was a little worried, which might explain why he didn't call his parents first, Mm -hmm. right? He also told Sarah he'd been trying to call them all morning and couldn't get hold of them. Again, if you're calling your parents all day long, no one's answering, the day before, no one's answering, Mm -hmm. and then you hear about this, maybe you wouldn't call your parents first, Right. Maybe. But the telephone records tell a different story. Chris hadn't tried to call them even once. Hmm. That makes more sense. Yeah, it does. So now we're ready
1: to talk about his taped interview and his comments after he was accused of attacking his parents, right?
0: Yeah, we are. So how he replied was interesting and kind of typical for a liar. So they told him his mother had indicated he was the culprit. And I read this a couple of times, and then I actually did an analysis on it. Three of the first eight sentences out of Chris's mouth indicated he wanted to hear his mother say he'd done it. By sentence 13, he had his entire defense that would be used at trial laid out for the investigators. First, my mother would never say I did this. And second, I was 200 miles away at school. Okay,
1: so it's not an actual denial. It's just my mom will never say I did it.
0: Right. He never says I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Throughout the interview, it was clear that Chris was confident his mother would not implicate him. And he was right, interestingly. He continued to state that he wanted to hear it from his mother. And he continued to argue that he was 200 miles away from school, sleeping on a couch in the lounge. He couldn't possibly have done this. And he appeared to have an insulating word. What's an insulating word? It is a word that a liar chooses to use to obfuscate the truth. His word was home. I wasn't at home when it happened. I was 200 miles away. I was at home when it happened. I couldn't possibly have done that. See how it works? Yeah, everything and nothing at the same time is home. That's right. And this is when the other detective, Detective Rudolph, confronted him saying he was devoid of emotion, that Chris hadn't shown any compassion or caring or even sadness for what his parents had just gone through. The detectives insisted he come clean. He insisted he was nowhere near home and hadn't killed his parents. And he insisted his mother would never say that.
1: That's a lot of confidence.
0: Well, he knew his mother really well. Mm-hmm. Investigator Williams entered the conversation around this time. The detective circled back to the conversation Chris had had with his ex while they were getting bagels, when he told her he was coming into some money and looking at property in the Outer Banks. Why would he say that? Was it to impress people? And Chris answered, Yeah, I've done it before. It's nothing new. (laughs) The investigator called him out rather harshly on lying about the loans he'd taken out. Did that get him anywhere? Well, no, Chris replied. Did it get him the chicks? What a word. No <laughs> answer. <laughs> they asked him about his schooling. It was less than stellar. He claimed he had failing grades the first semester because he had mono, which was a lie. Second semester was unclear by his answer, but because of when he was suspended, we know those grades were much less than stellar, too. He said he went home for the summer and took some classes at Hudson Community College And brought his GPA up to the low twos. That's bad. So the deal was he had to
1: live at home if he wasn't at the University of Rochester?
0: Exactly. And he didn't want to live at home.
1: So again, how did he think he pulled his grades up at Hudson Community College? He literally didn't finish the semester.
0: Well, that sort of detail doesn't appear to matter to a boy like him. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. He next admitted he guessed he always did have an excuse for his failures. He could always make one up. He also brought up the couch on fire again, intimating that that was why he was suspended from school, not because he was failing out. But the investigator had already checked that out. It was not a disciplinary action that had gotten him suspended. Chris denied he was drunk that night despite using alcohol to set the couch on fire.
1: You know, that is the second couch-on-fire story we've heard from a youthful parasite offender. Mm -hmm. Didn't Tyler Hadley do that, too?
0: Yes, he did. And that was episode 25, Party of the Century, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anyway, the investigator said the most interesting thing here. Chris said half of his fire-setting friends had been surprised that setting the couch on fire with liquor had actually worked. And the investigator said, and I'm going to quote this, Yeah, alcohol and fire don't mix. You should know that from your days at Bethlehem High School. Mm. And Chris responded, True. It didn't seem like it was a felony at the time.
1: So what did he do in high
0: school? (laughs) I wish
1: we had the story behind that investigator's comment. I do too. I don't know what he did.
0: But I'm not sure if the felony comment went with the couch arson or what happened in high school. But that was super interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they moved on to discussing those loans. Chris told them his dad was completely fine with the loans he'd taken out. His dad was on board, but not happy with the interest rate. He claimed, and we know for a fact this is a lie, that his parents were on board with the loans. They were not. Completely aware of the loans. They were after he got caught. And were completely fine with it. Most definitely a lie. But notice... The small loans Mm -hmm. and the large loans are conflated. Yeah. He nobly noted he wanted to be responsible for those loans, omitting the fact that he'd not bothered making payments after taking the money. Enough said about how that went. But Chris did mention he was in debt to the tune of over $60,000, which, if you don't know, is hard to do when you have no discernible income. Fraudulent gains? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Anyway, the investigators quickly moved on. They wanted to know more about his drinking. Do you think you drink a lot, Chris? I don't drink any more than the average college student, he retorted. He admitted he was drinking more than he had in high school, but he was in a frat now, so he figured that was expected. He drank probably four times a week. He didn't get drunk that often, he said. When asked, he said he'd been drunk the past weekend and on Thursday. (laughs) He said he'd only been drunk to throw up maybe three times. Three seems a bit excessive for a 21-year-old. I think so, too, but it's always relative. I'm not a big drinker, and I hate to throw up, so maybe there's personal bias there? I don't know. It's interesting, though. Yeah. So the investigators confronted him regarding the weekend. He admitted his father had strongly suggested he come to the house that weekend to discuss their issues. He claimed he hadn't seen the email until after he'd spent the weekend at his girlfriend's and returned home. But remember, he tells the girlfriend later that he went there and didn't see his dad. Mm-hmm. And then he later says he saw his dad. Ah, oh. So interesting. Anyway, then he admitted he was actually flat broke down to his last penny, with nowhere to turn. He claimed he'd actually applied for a job recently. He said, you know, I didn't realize, I mean, I knew, but I didn't realize how things add up.
1: <laughs> Nobody does, right, when you're spending like that?
0: No, they really don't. Um, you know, he had money for gas because his parents gave him a gas card. Ah. So whatever gas he put in that Jeep was, was paid parents. for by his parents, yeah. Ah. So when asked about lying, Chris adamantly stated he was not a pathological liar telling the biggest lie of all. Mm -hmm. When the detective pointed out all the areas of his life in which he lied, Chris reluctantly agreed that he was a bit of a liar overall and a big liar when it came to money and trying to play like he was wealthy. Then he said, I don't really know why I got started on it. It was in high school. It's too bad. He described himself to the detectives as a textbook alcoholic, but denied that he drank too much, all in the same breath. That's contrary. And it seems typical, though. Mm-hmm. He figured he'd just settle down by the time he was 25. Drinking is the college experience.
1: <laughs> okay, I think it's time to file a formal complaint.
0: Okay. College
1: <laughs> costs a small fortune, and they are trying to convince kids that it's just one drunken party over and over in order to get the real college experience. And it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That has destroyed and unfortunately even ended a lot of lives.
0: Agreed. I think that they need to rethink that and start teaching kids that the college experience is learning. hmm Anyway, the detectives started throwing hypotheticals at him. We know you lie to your girlfriends, your friends, your parents. We think you're lying to us. What if we came in here and handed you concrete evidence of your guilt? Would you deny it or would you come clean and admit it in hopes of not having to put your mother through a trial and everything? He chose denial, at least until after he'd spoken with his attorney and explored his options.
1: Of course he did. Denial seems to be the name of his game.
0: Right. The detective then asked how they could get to a place where they could feel they could trust him. He suggested they give him a lie detector test, but he'd want an attorney first. The investigator said, nah, what would be a better idea? And they had an interesting exchange. I'll be Chris, you be the investigator, okay? Okay. Chris. I'm Chris, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, call up people and verify my shit. Well, I am, but they're telling me you're a millionaire. No. They actually believe it. And a third investigator says, yeah. (laughs) And Chris says, Look beyond that. Well, what else are they supposed
1: to verify? Like, there are so many layers there. Like, you call people and they tell you a whole bunch of things that aren't true. If they don't know anything about him, why should we believe them on anything? But look beyond that. You know he has not used that
0: this time for the first time. No. I'm sure
1: it's not. I'm sure that he's asked his parents to call and verify things and... And told them to look beyond his
0: lies to the other lie. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, the... Investigators kept at it with him. They reminded him of what he'd said earlier and asked him pointed questions. He insisted he may have the times all wrong, but hey, he was on that couch all night. Ask his dorm mates. Hmm, they'd been thinking about that. When was the last time he'd seen his roommate? Earlier that day. Where was his roommate that night? Staying in his girlfriend's room. They'd been planning an overnighter for four days or so. Okay, so if Jason was coming to stay Sunday night, arriving at 9 p.m., and the roomie was staying at his girlfriend's, why didn't they just put Jason up in the roommate's bed? Because it was icky and filled with sex.
1: (laughs) That stopped frat boys before, right?
0: (laughs) Never. Why didn't he change the sheets and put Jason there? I don't mind sleeping on the couch, I guess in the morning when he went running yes does he do that as a habit well just started about a week ago as per chris he'd gotten up from the couch gotten his running shoes out of his dorm room he said he was wearing a white t-shirt shorts a sweatshirt his old adidas and a backpack on his back inside the backpack was a pair of boots and a sweatshirt wait said the investigator You said you'd slept in a pair of jeans and a black frat sweatshirt. How are you suddenly in shorts? I thought you were wearing jeans. I changed. When? I asked. I remember changing at my girlfriend's, actually. All right. Did you ask me if I changed or not?
1: Yeah, I asked you what you were wearing in bed. I asked you when you went to your room, what did you do to get sneakers and put them on?
0: I changed the night before. I didn't change that morning.
1: I asked you what you were wearing when you went to bed on the couch. Shorts and a sweatshirt.
0: And you said jeans and a hoodie. I wore shorts to bed. They were blue shorts that said you are on the flap. Well, that's certainly not what he said before. Nope, it isn't. Anyway, they dropped the topic of clothes and the lounge and hit him up again regarding how angry his folks must have been about those forged signatures on the loans. Chris was ready for them. He claimed his dad already knew about the Jeep loan. It was old news. His parents had already made up a couple of his missed Jeep payments. And on that one, his dad had just not understood how contracts work.
1: His dad, the attorney who had clerked for an appellate judge for three decades. And the kid says his dad is the one who doesn't understand how contracts work. You
0: got it. This kid. I know. But the evidence is stacking up against him. Investigators had been sent up to the University of Rochester to interview everyone and anyone who might be able to place Chris on that couch in the lounge on the night of November 14th through the morning of November 15th, and no one could place him on that couch. Chris's frat brothers talked about the impromptu party in the lounge beginning at 10.30 p.m., They'd watched Shrek 2 together and partied until past 3 a.m., and Chris had been nowhere to be seen and definitely not on the couch. According to CBS News, one of his frat brothers put it this way, and this is a quote, It just so happened that some of the guys were up and we stayed up until like 3.30 a.m. The lounge is a square room and some couches and TV. It's not like maybe he was there and we overlooked him. He wasn't there.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's no way you miss a guy asleep on the couch while you all watch Shrek. You'd sit on him.
0: Mm -hmm. The police confronted Chris with this new information. His frat brothers could not put him on that couch in the lounge while they were partying between 10.30 p.m. and 3 a.m. And they had camera footage showing Chris heading off campus in his Jeep. Now that Chris thought he knew what the investigators knew, He could make this work out all right. Chris didn't deny it was his Jeep, which inadvertently gave the investigators more than he realized. His admitting that the Jeep on the camera was his and that he was driving it at 10.30 p.m. was a boon. This admission put him in his yellow Jeep with the oversized tires, the mud stain, and the W2004 decal on the spare tire cover in a way that really helped solve this crime. that's it for today. This one is pretty intense.
1: Yes, but wait, we need to back up just one minute. Okay. In my head, that poor little dog, Barrister, is still trapped in the basement of the Porco's residence. And after a six-hour interrogation, we're looking at at least 10 p.m.
0: Where's Barrister? Oh, I'm sorry. I guess we did forget about Barrister being in the basement. Remember, the intruder didn't just open the door to the home and let Barrister leave if he pleased. They found Barrister trapped in the basement. The intruder had taken the time and had the knowledge to put the dog away in the same manner that the family always put the dog away. He was trapped in the basement. Habits die hard. Anyway, remember the veterinarian that he used to work for? Yeah. Her name is Elaine Laforte, and she's really the hero in this story. She went to the police station and got permission to pick Barrister up and take him to her home. Which was good, because Chris and Joan both ended up staying with her and her partner. Joan eventually headed to Rochester to stay with her brother. I'm not sure if Barrister went with her or not. I hope that answers your question, though. It does. We'll be back next
1: week to talk about everything else. This story is quite a ride, but thankfully not a yellow Jeep. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's right. So, if you enjoy this podcast, please like or follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you want to lend us some support, head on over to patreon.org, parasitepodcast And if you want to chat, reach out to us on Facebook, or email us at parasite at Again, we'd like to thank Bimbo with the Newsy for encouraging us to share this story with you.
1: We'd also like to thank Jade Brown for our music and AllThat'sInteresting.com, the Bethlehem Public Library, The Times Union, Cosa Nostra News, CBS News, Journal News, Forensic Files, Campus Times, Spotlight News, The Berkshire Eagle, Democrat and Chronicle, Troy Cord, Forensic Files Now, Poughkeepsie Journal, Wikipedia, Oxford Academic, Murderpedia, Just Law, Nellie Andreeva's Deadline Hollywood, Medium.com, and Steve Ferenczi, the author of November Memories, Inside the Christopher Porco Case, for our source material.
0: That November Memories book by Steve Ference is an excellent read. We highly recommend it if you want to learn more about this case.
1: Join us next week when we discuss what happens next. You'll be sorry if you miss it.
0: This has been the Parasite Podcast, and remember, always sleep with one eye open. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.